Blockchain technology is widely anticipated to disrupt major industries and business operations over the next several years. But with all of the hype in the blockchain market, at times it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction and identify the real value in this new technology. To help bring things into focus, we've crafted a five-part series titled Baker Hostetler Blockchain University to introduce blockchain from a technological, market, and legal perspective. The second episode in the series focuses on the Bitcoin network, the world's first implementation of blockchain, and the first cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. I'm Amy Kotman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. Our guests today are Rob Musiala and Joanna Wasik. Rob is counsel in Baker Hostetler's Digital Assets and Data Management Group and the co-leader of our Blockchain Technologies and Digital Currency team. Joanna is a partner in Baker Hostetler, whose practice focuses on financial litigation, blockchain technology, and cryptocurrencies. Welcome to the show, Rob and Joanna. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Amy. Nice to be here. We know the Bitcoin network is the world's first implementation of blockchain technology, and Bitcoin is one of the world's most widely used cryptocurrencies. In many respects, the blockchain market started with Bitcoin. And so the origins and concepts underlying the Bitcoin network can provide insights into the issues that drive the larger blockchain market. There are just some really interesting stories surrounding the Bitcoin network, like the fact that we still don't know who actually created it. Joanna, where did the Bitcoin network come from? Who created it and why? So... The idea of Bitcoin first came into the public domain in 2008, uh, and that's when the Bitcoin white paper was written and published by the creator of the Bitcoin network, Satoshi Nakamoto. And Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper described a peer-to-peer version of digital money called Bitcoin that would um, allow payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a third party like a, a bank or a financial institution. And instead of that third party that would verify the payment, um, that role would be fulfilled essentially by a digital ledger that time marks the existence and the movement of every Bitcoin. And this is the description of a blockchain, a decentralized ledger that that now has been utilized in many different areas and industries. Um, But here it's a public, immutable, decentralized digital ledger that's used to track and verify Bitcoin. Um, and it's free. There's no extra fee payment like you have to a, a third-party bank or a payment facilitator. And it's it's important to take this in the context of, of what's happening in the world when this white paper is being read for the first time. Obviously, 2008 is a charged time for the financial world and, and the world in general. And these qualities of Bitcoin that are being described especially the lack of a third party, is it's, it's crucial. Um, while at, at many points in time, a third party is something that's of value for financial transactions, um, at this point, when people's confidence in major institutions and governments is decreasing, having an alternative to that framework, that, that paradigm of needing the middleman and replacing it with a neutral piece of technology um, that's that's groundbreaking and uh, and it's attractive. So uh, the Bitcoin network itself comes into existence and functionality in January 2009. 
And that's when the first Bitcoin is, is mined off the network by that same creator, Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, and Amy, you're right. Um, in your introduction, uh, the thing is that nobody really knows who Satoshi is, period. Um, some people have speculated that it's one person or it's a group of individuals known as Satoshi Nakamoto that created Bitcoin. Um, and there was even an article that was published in Newsweek that came out um, in 2014. And the reporter, the reporter wrote that Satoshi was a, a 64-year-old guy living in, in Los Angeles whose name actually was Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, but this individual, Dorian, um, has emphatically denied that he's the Bitcoin creator. Um, but there's another uh, Australian computer scientist named Craig Craig Wright, Craig Wright, yeah. Um, and he claims he's the main guy behind a team um, under the pseudonym of, of Satoshi Nakamoto that created Bitcoin, but um, his claims are largely regarded as false by the, the media and the cryptocurrency community. So again, we don't know who Satoshi is or was, um, and that really adds to the mystique about Bitcoin and the network in general. Um, but to be continued on that one. Maybe one day we'll find out. Well, we still may not know who created the network, but Rob, perhaps you can tell us who controls the Bitcoin network. Well, the short answer is that no one controls it. If you have an internet connection, you can use the Bitcoin network to send and receive Bitcoin and really no one can stop you. And, and that's the beauty of it. Uh, although it does create some legal complications, but we'll talk about those in a later podcast. Um, the more nuanced answer is that control of the Bitcoin network is spread out across the various people and entities that collectively support two things. The first is the source code, and the second is the mining hardware. And the fact that this control is spread out is what is meant when people say a distributed or a decentralized network. Really, any internet-based technology has two key components. First is the code that governs how the technology functions. And second is the hardware that processes the functions that are dictated by the code. And with traditional technologies, the code is written and controlled by a company, and the hardware is a server that is also controlled by that company. And the Bitcoin network basically takes this model and turns it inside out. In the Bitcoin network, the code is open source, which means it's publicly available for anyone to see. Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he or she or they were or is, uh, wrote the code, but then Satoshi disappeared and Satoshi handed the code to a group of five people who are now referred to as the Bitcoin core developers. And the core developers technically control the code because they're the only ones who can actually make updates to it. However, the entire world is watching this publicly available code. And in fact, anyone can propose updates to the code, and, and that has happened. There's a, there's a formal process for proposing updates to the Bitcoin code. And at this point, there have actually been over 100 developers from all over the world that have contributed to the Bitcoin code. So in this way, the code is effectively spread out across different people or, you know, as people will say, quote, decentralized. With respect to the hardware, there's no single server for the Bitcoin network. Instead, there are hundreds and actually probably thousands of independent operators of hardware, 
all over the world that collectively support the network. These are what I refer to as Bitcoin miners. So every 10 minutes, these miners race to solve complex algorithms that effectively verify and process transactions on the Bitcoin network. They do this because the miner that solves the algorithm first is rewarded with newly minted Bitcoins. And interestingly, the more miners that compete to win this reward, the harder the algorithm becomes. So now there's this huge industry devoted to Bitcoin mining with companies all over the world that operate warehouses full of, of computer processors. And they're all trying to win these new Bitcoins that are paid out every 10 minutes. And these miners effectively take the place of a conventional server. So in this way, the hardware function of the Bitcoin network is spread out or distributed or decentralized uh, among the community of Bitcoin miners. One last thing on the topic of control that I want to mention is that there's this concept called the 51% attack, which essentially means that if someone were to control 51% or more of the mining activity on the Bitcoin network, then they could theoretically manipulate transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. And this is something to watch out for, but from a practical standpoint, it's not too much of a concern because control of the mining industry is sufficiently spread out uh, across uh, you know, various miners all over the world uh, and, are, and is, you know, as, as they say, de distributed or decentralized in this way. What gives Bitcoin its value, Rob? Uh, this is a great question. Uh, and I'll start by saying that I'll comment on what I call the inherent value of Bitcoin and not the price of Bitcoin. Uh, if I was an expert on the price, I'd be doing this podcast from a vacation home in the Bahamas or somewhere. <laughs> Um, but the inherent value is, in my opinion, actually much more interesting. So if you think about why the U.S. dollar has value, in my opinion, it's really two things. The first is that it's, it's hard to counterfeit the U.S. dollar. We put a lot of money into making sure that the dollar is hard to counterfeit. If it were easy to counterfeit dollars, the value of the dollar would suffer greatly. And secondly, we trust the institutions and the systems that help us to store and transfer the dollar. So if banks were constantly telling us that they lost all our money and we had to store all of our dollars under our mattress and, and pay for everything in person with cash, then all of a sudden the dollar really starts to lose its value. And these same concepts apply with Bitcoin. So, so far, it has proven impossible to counterfeit a Bitcoin. And believe me, I'm sure there are lots of hackers who have tried. Uh, and so far... There has never been an instance where the Bitcoin network has been hacked or significantly disrupted. So the payment system of the Bitcoin network has proven to be very reliable. So I often say that every day that goes by that a Bitcoin isn't counterfeited and every day that goes by that the Bitcoin network isn't hacked, the inherent value of Bitcoin grows stronger. Now, I do want to point out that while the Bitcoin network has never been hacked, the individual wallets for storing Bitcoin are very much susceptible to hacking. Uh, and there have been a lot of instances of major hacks of individual Bitcoin wallets, especially from exchanges. Um, and there's even now an insurance, a whole insurance industry uh, dedicated to insuring against hacked Bitcoins. However, while the Bitcoin wallets can be hacked, again, the Bitcoin network itself that allows you to send and receive Bitcoin, that has never been hacked. Uh, and then one other thing that I think gives Bitcoin its value is the fact that there is a readily accessible exchange market where you can buy and sell Bitcoin in exchange for US dollars or other national currencies. So 
These days, there are hundreds of cryptocurrency exchanges that are in the business of allowing people to um, sell their Bitcoin for dollars or other currencies or purchase Bitcoin you know, with US dollars or other currencies. So the fact that Bitcoin has become um, a relatively liquid market also, in my opinion, uh, gives it inherent value. But just to, to round out that idea, all of those qualities that Rob's talking about, um, that that a Bitcoin can't be counterfeited, that there's a, a means for exchanging it um, to other people for, for different types of value, um, that, that engenders confidence in people, that this is a place where I, wanna, uh, I would want to store my wealth in. Um, and so having enough people storing their wealth or using it as a currency that, that overall creates um, a valuable asset. So... So that's why you see people flocking to it more and more as a means of, of storing wealth. Joanna, Rob talked about who controls the Bitcoin network. Could you talk a little bit about who controls the supply of Bitcoin? Sure. Um, the supply, the, uh, the amount of Bitcoin that will be in circulation, that's controlled by the Bitcoin network protocol. And the number is capped at 21 million. So that's the, the total number that will ever be produced according to the code. Um, and the way that that happens is that the protocol releases a block of code on the blockchain according to preset time increments. So, so one block every 10 minutes. And um, that's where the Bitcoins are coming from, for lack of a, a better term. And, and that's where they're mined from, the, the process that Rob was talking about earlier. And as time goes on, the amount of Bitcoin that can be released or rewarded from, from these blocks is reduced every four years. Um, and that, that's called a halving event. So there are less and less Bitcoin available to miners as rewards as time goes on. So um, when the Bitcoin was first launched, the reward was 50 Bitcoin for, for solving the algorithm that, that Rob was talking about um, and then in 2012, it was halved to 25 Bitcoin. And 2016, it was halved again to 12.5. Um, and then, then in this past May, uh, we had another halving event and the reward was halved to 6.25 Bitcoin. So um, the number is, is steadily decreasing how many newly Bitcoin are coming um, into, into circulation. Um, and not only is that that number going down, but the amount of processing, the amount of, of power it takes to to mine and, and to figure out these algorithms is steadily getting more and more difficult. So um, in the beginning, when mining was was coming into an existence, you could basically do it off of, well, I couldn't do it off of my laptop, but but theoretically, some, some people out there um, knew how to do this out of, you know, off their, their laptops, whereas now... You have a whole industry of um, companies that are consolidating computer um, computing power um, and different types of hardware so that they can rush and be the first to um, verify, the first to, to crack these algorithms to get to um, this decreasing amount of newly created or newly mined Bitcoin. Yeah, two points I want to add there, Amy, is that the mining market has really become kind of an arms race. Um, as Joanna mentioned, the, the code base that governs the Bitcoin protocol is, is programmed such that the more people who are devoting processing power trying to win that reward of Bitcoin that is paid out every 10 minutes, 
the more processing power that is devoted to that, the harder the algorithm gets uh, to solve. And so that's why we now have this um, massive industry where you literally have these warehouses full of computer hardware that are devoted solely to winning that reward that's paid out every 10 minutes. Um, the other thing I want to note with regard to the supply of Bitcoin is that because the amount of Bitcoin is capped at 21 million, some people have concerns about supply and demand issues. But um, in another sort of clever aspect of the code base, um, the supply is in many respects governed by the users because each user is able to divide a Bitcoin all the way down as small as eight decimal places. So 0.00000001 Bitcoins. And so by giving the market, the users, the ability to slice and dice a Bitcoin down into smaller and smaller pieces, that in many respects gives the market control uh, over supply. And in fact, my understanding is that the code base can be updated if needed to allow Bitcoin to be divided down even further beyond eight decimal places. And what is the current value of one Bitcoin? Um, I'll answer that. I, I think right now it's it's been about at ten thousand U.S. dollars. Um, it's gone up as high I think uh, about twenty thousand dollars. It, it's reached twenty thousand dollars several years back. Um, and initially, when when they first came into an existence, um, they were in pennies. So the increase of value has has really skyrocketed. Um, and it's it's also created all of these different offshoots um, and different markets and different industries to support something of of that type of value. Joanna, can you explain the other new markets that Bitcoin has created? Sure, um, and it's interesting, right? Because initially, when you go back to that that two thousand and eight white paper, part of the attraction to the Bitcoin design is is the lack of third parties and the lack of this extra infrastructure. But um, as we see the the value increasing and and the amount of people who are are purchasing Bitcoin and using it, um, it's created, if not a need per se, definitely a high demand for things to facilitate and safeguard Bitcoin transactions and, and Bitcoin custody and um, enable people to trade it more than just going on their computer and reaching out. Um, via peer-to-peer network to another individual. Um, so we spoke a little bit earlier about, about mining and how this is a, a new industry because of the computing power that, that's necessary now to, to get rewarded with these new Bitcoins. Um, but cryptocurrency exchanges, I think, are also a huge new market. Um, and these are businesses that allow customers to buy and sell cryptocurrencies, um, not just Bitcoin, um, but it gives them a place to, to exchange uh, Bitcoin for other cryptocurrencies or other fiat currencies like a U.S. dollar. Basically, you go to um, an exchange, you set up an account with that exchange, and you can just purchase um, your cryptocurrency in that, in that way. And you can trade it with other, other individuals who are also customers to that exchange. Um, once you have cryptocurrency, you, you need to store them. So uh, there are things called wallets and wallet providers offer services to store cryptocurrencies um, on behalf of their customers. And there are two primary uh, types of wallets. There's a hot wallet and those are wallets that are connected to the Internet and they have a, a private key that's managed by the wallet provider. 
um, these are the ones that are, are more popular on exchanges. So you'll open up an account on, the, on an exchange, purchase your Bitcoin, and then keep it on the exchange's hot wallet. That's your hot wallet. But there are also cold wallets and cold wallets store cryptocurrencies offline on external hardware, I think, uh, devices. Um, and although hot wallets are more um, liquid and user-friendly, cold wallets provide more security from hackers. Um, and then briefly, some other other uh, markets, there are cryptocurrency custody providers, and those are providers who um, supply storage services for cryptocurrencies in large quantities. Um, and those customers are typically exchanges themselves, high net worth individuals, so uh, traditional financial institutions such as uh, Fidelity and Northern Trust, who have begun initiatives to provide cryptocurrency custody services. Um, there are also cryptocurrency payment processors who enable merchants to accept Bitcoin on their on their sales, on their online sales. Um, and then there are Bitcoin ATMs, which have uh, been spreading quickly throughout the world, especially in the United States. And, and these are physical kiosks that look like traditional ATMs. And uh, the kiosk allows customers to insert cash and receive cryptocurrency. Um, and users can uh, also send their cryptocurrency to the kiosk's public key and then receive fiat cash from, from the machine, just similar to uh, an ATM. And uh, the final market I'll, I'll touch on briefly because they're becoming more popular are cryptocurrency OTC desks, over-the-counter desks. Um, and these are businesses that buy and sell cryptocurrencies for their own account, usually in large volumes. And the price volatility of Bitcoin appears to have, have given rise to these types of firms. And they, they try to profit by buying and selling Bitcoin at the right times. And OTC firms sometimes trade on cryptocurrency exchanges, but, but they mostly, I would say, deal in privately arranged peer-to-peer -peer transactions, often with other OTC firms. Rob, as a final question, are Bitcoin transactions anonymous? Great question. So uh, contrary to popular belief, Bitcoin transactions are not anonymous. Instead, Bitcoin transactions are what people call pseudo-anonymous or what I'll call partially anonymous. For every Bitcoin transaction that has ever taken place since the very beginning of the Bitcoin network, there's a public record on the publicly available Bitcoin blockchain that shows the date and time of the transaction and the exact amount of the transaction. But here's the thing, the Bitcoin blockchain doesn't tell us the names of the parties to those transactions. And this is why uh, I would call it partially anonymous. So instead, what the Bitcoin blockchain tells us is uh, it gives us what are called the public keys of the transacting parties. And a public key is basically a unique identifier. It's, it's a unique string of letters and numbers. And so while we don't necessarily know who is behind a public key on the Bitcoin blockchain, with enough analysis of the blockchain data set, you can actually start to get a pretty good idea of the transactional activity that is associated with any given public key. To dig a little bit deeper, these days there's this growing area, another growth area of the, of the Bitcoin market uh, that are these blockchain analytics providers. Uh, and these providers um, have created tools that can be used to analyze the publicly available Bitcoin blockchain. These tools were um, originally developed to help law enforcement on investigations that involved Bitcoin, 
but now they're starting to be used for more things, things like anti-money laundering compliance for banks and cryptocurrency exchanges, um, and even for analyzing market trends and other economic trends. And part of the way that the tools work is they use what are called heuristic algorithms, which are basically advanced mathematical guesses. And they use these algorithms to show which public keys on the publicly available blockchain are likely to be owned or controlled by the same person or entity. They call these clusters of related Bitcoin transactions or related Bitcoin public keys. And the tools essentially group transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain together that are likely to be controlled by the same party. And then when they do that, they can then start to identify relationships between these different clusters of transactions, uh, which would be relationships between different parties transacting on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so when you take these analytics tools and you combine them with other investigative techniques, things like searches of publicly available online information, social media, stuff like that, more and more we're finding that you can actually start to identify with a fair degree of confidence who is behind some of these semi-anonymous or partially anonymous public keys. And by the way, the US government has actually had some great success at using blockchain analytics uh, to bust bad guys that are using Bitcoin. So um, blockchain analytics is really uh, a really interesting topic, and it's probably going to become more and more interesting uh, as time goes on and as use of the Bitcoin network uh, continues to grow and become more mainstream. Thank you, Rob and Joanna. That was really interesting. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Amy. Always nice to be on the show. If you have any questions for Rob or Joanna, their contact information is in the show notes. Be sure to check out our weekly Blockchain Monitor blog where Rob is the editor and Joanna is a frequent contributor. In our next episode of Baker Hostetler Blockchain University, we will discuss the introduction to Ethereum, Hyperledger, and other blockchains. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Host are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.